The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox. I am your host. I'm your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Megan McArdle. She is the author of Up, The Upside of Down, While Failing is the Key to Success. Uh, she is a Bloomberg columnist and blogger and makes the case that success in business and in life is largely contingent on how quickly and nimbly we learn from our mistakes. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Megan. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, well, you have been uh, one of the most, as I understand it, popular business and economics bloggers for more than a decade, and uh, one of those people who challenge us how to Think differently about how we live and how we work. And in your book, you argue that America is unique in its willingness to let people and companies fail, although I don't think Americans like the word fail, but also in its determination to help pick them up after they fall. Yes. Okay. But failure is how we learn, is what I would say is one of the main tenets of your book. Um, so failure is how we learn, but there is a problem with that. What is it? Well, we don't like it. it has to, <laughs> failure has to feel bad because if it didn't feel bad, we wouldn't stop doing things that aren't working. Um, but of course, because it feels bad, we try to avoid it as much as possible. And, you know, there are some good ways of trying to avoid failure. You should try to plan for unexpected contingencies. You should try to make sure that when you do take a risk, that it's not the sort of thing that could sink you if it doesn't go well. Um, but what we try to do instead is, is try to like engineer failure out of our lives which often means not taking risks, which then in turn means not really succeeding, not really growing, because the people who do take risks and are willing to challenge themselves and try new things are the people who end up being the most successful in the long run. Well, you're talking about two things, though, aren't you? You're saying take a risk, yes, but then you can take a risk and fail. Take a calculated risk. That's, that's what I hear you saying, a calculated risk, not just being irresponsible and doing things that you set yourself up for failure, for instance. But, okay, so we take a risk, but we as a society are too risk-adversive, and this is not good either for us or for our children, because if we're too risk-adverse, too afraid of failing, then we're not going to be able to get ahead. How does that work? Well, I mean, America actually in a lot of ways has long been very strong about taking risks and things like it shows up in things like our rate of entrepreneurship. And it's not that surprising because if you think about who we are, right, we are the nation of people who moved because things were not working out where they came from. And so, you know, we do have a lot of people who are willing to splash out, try something new. And even more importantly, maybe, is we have a lot of people who, when that happens, they admire people who do that, even if it doesn't work out. We don't look at the outcome, and so we look at the process. We say, hey, you know, it didn't work, but you tried something, and you sort of dared to dream, and that's really important to the American character. Um, but we're getting less like that. We are letting our, our 
potential and our, our talent for failing well uh, slip away from us in response to a lot of global trends, I think. Um, also, some cultural shifts, and that's really dangerous because America is really good at being America, at being this spectacular failure, and we need to get back to those roots, especially with all the challenges that we're facing in the 21st century. Right, so we're doing that, and you, and you even talk about how we do that with our children. We start from the very beginning. We are sort of we are encouraging our our children to be risk adverse, to be terrified of taking risks. And if we do that, then they're not going to be successful in the way that we have as a country. Let's say in the past, is that what you're saying? We have to change yeah. our. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. I, mean, I, I think the metaphor for our age yeah. is the uh, disappearance of the high monkey bars from playgrounds. Mm-hmm. Is that. Uh, we were so worried about our kids falling that we took away the chance for them to climb high. And that's not to say, you know, when I was a kid, the monkey bars were not only seven or eight feet tall, but they also had concrete under them. We put padding under them, and that was a great step because it lowers the cost of trying. But then we chopped off the top and made it so that you couldn't climb in the first place. And that is the kind of, that is the kind of failure prevention strategy that you really need to avoid because it's more dangerous um, than the monkey bars were because it doesn't give kids the opportunity to learn how to overcome their fears, to climb high, and learn that, yes, the price of climbing is the occasional fall. That's a good example. And you, uh, you also, because I'd like to kind of stick with the children because I think that's where we start, obviously. Um, you talk about why so many gifted children end up as terrible procrastinators. And if you're a terrible procrastinator, Procrastinator, obviously, you're not going to be able to get ahead, and you have all this these skills and intelligence and creativity and energy. So, what happens? Why are so many gifted children? Why do they end up as procrastinators? Is is this part of this risk adversive kind of attitude we have? Well, you see this very much, and uh, you see it in writers, for example. Um, what happens is, if school is too easy for you, young. Um, and if people praise you for being smart, you get the idea that, that being successful is about finding work easy. It's about the most successful person is the, the person for whom it comes with the least amount of effort. And, you know, that may be true in, in grammar school spelling bees, but it's not true in the real world. When you get to the big leagues, all of the other people that you're competing with were also people who were good in school often. And so you can't just think that you're supposed to glide on natural talent. Unfortunately, by that point, a lot of people learned that lesson and learned it too well. And so what they do is they become self-protective. When you think of when you think of talent and ability as something that's a fixed quantity that you were just born with, well every challenge that you face, it's something that could it's like a dipstick, right? It's measuring that level of talent and that means that you could find out that you don't measure up. And so what do you do? You shy away from things you're not good at or you try something once, find out that you're that that you're not good at it the first time and think, "Oh, well, I'm just not good at that sort of thing. I'm not going to try anymore." The people who actually succeed the best are the people who view these challenges not as a measurement of their inter- the, the fixed quantity of ability they were born with, but instead as an opportunity to see what they're good at, to see what they're not good at, to learn and to grow. Um, psychologists call those people growth mindset people versus a fixed mindset person. Those people, you can change that. You can actually change how you think about it. And I, you know, in the course of writing this book, I interviewed the psychologist who came up with this distinction. And I confessed to her, I said, you know, I'm a fixed mindset person. She said, oh, me too. I was too. Um, but she changed. And the funny thing is that over the course of the, writing this book, I changed too. Is that just by, by reminding yourself that failure really is how you learn and that failing is not a sign that you don't have what it takes. It's a sign that you were doing something you didn't know how to do, which is a good thing, um, that you can actually change 
both your willingness to take these, these risks and how well you respond to them when they don't work out the first time. Well, I think, unfortunately, a lot of these children are embedded in these classrooms where everybody's a winner. And, you know, I've talked a lot about that on this show, for instance. I mean, kids, everybody wins a prize. Uh, everybody gets a trophy, you know, um, whether it's in sports or academics or whatever it is. And so then they're actually, the school systems are, I think, unfortunately, promoting the opposite of what you're saying. Yes, exactly. I mean, no, first of all, because the kids do know. Um, and I, I remember talking to a business school professor who said she gave she had a challenge to her class and one of the teams won. And someone else raised her hand and said, we're all winners. And she said, no, they won. You know? <laughs> it's, it's okay to compete and to lose. That's not, you know, losing should not be a dirty word because the kids do know who's better and, and who's not. And when you send the message that losing is so terrible we can't even admit that it happened, that's a terrible message to send to children. Competition is healthy. Not, doing, not being the best at everything, is, is, that's the natural human condition. There's no one in the world who's the best at every single thing. You have to be able to try things that you're not good at, to lose gracefully when you lose. That's how you ultimately learn how to win. And so by taking that away from kids, we're, we're depriving them of this key skill, which is finding out that you aren't the best in the room and dealing with that and making yourself better or finding the thing that you are the best at. What do you think about parents who say you can be anything you want to be? You know, what, you, you can, you know, they start telling them that in elementary school. You can do whatever you want to do. I think there's a, there's a healthy and an unhealthy way to say that. It's not true that you can do everything, anything that you want to do, right? I, my parents, I'm six foot two, uh, which is not obvious over the radio, but my parents knew that I was going to be this tall, partly because my dad's six foot seven, but they measured me when I was a little kid and they knew I was going to be really tall. I wanted to be a gymnast and then a jockey. Probably I should not have been encouraged in those dreams. <laughs> um, well, I just but, have to say, I'm the jockey and I'm five feet tall, so we're at both ends of the, the 180, <laughs> right? Yeah, no, I, I really wanted to. I really wanted to be a jockey, and no one explained to me that that was not going to happen until I was like ten years old and already almost six feet tall. Um, but you know, so that you shouldn't tell kids that they can do things that they're just clearly kind of not genetically destined for one way or the other. If you if you have a ten year, then you're not going to be a famous singer and so forth. That said, um, you don't want what I think is is unhealthy is when you. Tell kids, oh, well, we figured out what you're going to be at the age of eight, and then we're tracking you into that. This is A lot of people talk about how great Germany's system is, where people are tracked early, they're tracked into vocational programs, um, and then they, they go into apprenticeships. And it actually is a very good system for hooking kids up um, with jobs in manufacturing. It's one of the reasons Germany is so good at manufacturing, but there's a real cost to that. In fact, there's two costs to that. The first is the kids who get tracked into that, that track early, they get, then can't get out. So once you're off the college track, you're off and that's it. Uh, and that's fine for a lot of kids who just aren't academic and don't want to do that, but it, marking kids that young does have its price. The even bigger price is that if you're 30 in the industry that you changed for, cha- you trained for, changes and is no longer as big or hiring as much as many people, you know, that whole rigid system for funneling people into the manufacturing sector works against you because then it's really hard to get back in. Um, and so, you know, what the American system has always been really good at, we don't track kids that young. We do tell them they can be whatever they want. And it's not actually necessarily true, but it gives them more freedom to find things that they might, that adults might not have thought of for them. Um, 
And so I think you, you see that in our entrepreneurial culture and the number of people who come up with weird businesses who would have thunk it because no one told them they couldn't. Yeah. Well, maybe there's that balance, and we tend to, it's either all or nothing. You can be whatever you want, or you're trying to funnel kids from the very beginning into some whatever skill that, uh, and, and not give them the opportunity to learn other skills or professions or whatever. So are we kind of talking about balance when we're talking about kids? But you also mentioned, and I just want to, because I want to cover some of these topics, but like as adult failed business ventures, the actual failed business ventures when you are that adult can be a resume booster. And you've had failed bo- uh, business ventures as uh, also. I yes, although <laughs> as I'm I mean, looking at your bio. Yes, uh, <laughs> so how did that work for you? Is... Two failed startups. Yes. Well, yes, it sounds very impressive, but the reason that they were said that I, I've worked for startups is that they kept going out of business. So I would go to work for a place, and immediately they would go out of business. It seemed like, uh, in fact, it got to the point where a friend who was an equity analyst said, "Look, if any of the companies that I cover offer you a job, could you please let me know before you accept? Because I want to short the stock." Um, That's very funny. Yeah. So you know. Yeah, it was it was it was a really great experience to be in these very early startups to see how they work um and to learn like what entrepreneurship is really all about, which is a lot less about the the sexy visioning that you see, you know, you see that magazine cover and the guy is crossed arms and staring off into space on it and then you read about how he had this brilliant vision and next thing you know it happened. Um when you're inside uh, a startup, or indeed when you talk to entrepreneurs about what they do day to day, it's a lot more complicated than that. And you hear a lot about failures. You hear a lot about people who tried it the first time and the business didn't work out. You hear a lot about people who, well, we almost went out of business and then we realized the thing we were trying to do didn't work, but there was this other thing that we were kind of doing incidentally and that turned out to be a good business and so we did that instead. You hear that over and over and over again, that we think of it as this very clear, defined, you're successful because you're a smart, hardworking person who had a good plan. But in fact, all of these smart, hardworking people who've done it will tell you you know, there was no way to know whether this was going to work until we tried. And in some cases, they'll say, and it didn't work. We couldn't make it pay. And in some cases, they'll say it was wildly successful. But they weren't, you know, it wasn't destiny. They did not know starting out that this was definitely going to work. There was a huge amount of trial and error. Um, and that really is just how startup culture works. Many things that sound great and everyone thinks are genius ideas just don't work in the marketplace. But Megan, also, don't we want to emphasize, or it would seem to me that, yes, failure is one thing and it can motivate you to succeed, but you do say failure, you have to know how to learn from your mistakes because, I mean, you look at those people who continually do the same thing over and over and they keep failing and can, you know, use your book as an excuse for, well, you know, this is an evolution, a learning process, but yet they keep losing money, they keep losing businesses. Uh, and that's different than what you're talking about. So I, I, I'd like you to t- clarify that. Yeah, you know, I talk a lot about this in the book because it's really important. The important thing is not just to blindly fail and just keep doing the same thing that isn't working. Um, that's crazy. That's not persistence. That's crazy. And the way I like to think about it is this. How do you, how do you know when you, it's time to hang it up? One way to think about it is, G.K. Chesterton, who was a, a prominent writer in the uh, early part of the 20th century, he, had this, he talked about social reformers, and I promise this will make sense in a minute. 
He said, you know, they, 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 they're like a guy who comes across a fence in the road, and they say, this fence doesn't have any reason to be here. It's stupid. We should tear it down. And he says, that's the last person who should be allowed to take that fence out because he doesn't know what it's for. And the fence didn't just grow there. Someone put it there. Now, if you know why that fence is there, then maybe then you're in a good position to say, you know what, that reason is no longer valid. We used to hold cows in that field, and now we don't. Or... If, or that we have a better way of doing that thing. But if you just think that it's stupid and it doesn't belong there, then you shouldn't touch it. So how do we connect that to failure? Well, look, if you, if you want to, first of all, when you start out, you should always have a milestones and, and a timeline where you're checking in and saying, is this working? But more than that, if it's not working, if you can tell me why it's not working with a high degree of confidence, and you can tell me why that's likely to change. Not like we hope that maybe some customer is going to come give us money, but look, our sales are trending up or we're about to get this big contract or we figured this out and we can change it. Then you should keep going. But if all you can say is it's got to work this time, then you should stop because it's not working. Can you, you have to know a, why. You have to be yeah. able to name the failure before you, before you can make a good case for continuing if it's been a while and it's not working. Uh, give us an example of that, so something that we all can relate to, let's say, where uh, both examples where um, someone, celebrity, somebody that we know, someone in politics, whomever, who has done, who has been able to name the failure and been able to have these milestones and gone on to be wildly successful, and then somebody who hasn't done that, that we can relate so one to. Of, one of my favorite examples, someone we all know, Colonel Har- Harlan Sanders, um, Kentucky <laughs> Fried Chicken. So he was, he was a serial failure. And at one point, his wife actually left him because she was so sick of the job losses and the get-rich-quick schemes. He finally got it together when he was in his 40s, and he got a roadside cafe. And then the state of Kentucky builds a new throughway. And his old cafe, his cafe had been on the main highway, on the old main highway. The new throughway bypassed it. He lost his business. So he's 65 years old when this happens. And a lot of people would have just said, you know, hang it up, I'm done. Um, but he actually said, you know what, I had this great fried chicken recipe, and the business was good. The problem was the location. So he went and said, what I need is a lot of locations. I need to go, I need to go and find other restaurants that want to sell this fried chicken. Um, and so he went out on the road, and he went to uh, restaurant conventions. He went to door-to-door restaurants and said, give me five cents of chicken, and I will show you how to make the best fried chicken you've ever made. The rest is history. Um, and so, you know, an alternative example, GM, they were burning, uh, by the summer of 2008, they were burning through $3 billion in cash every month. And uh, to the, this was public information. You could see it. Every time their earnings came out, you could see how much money they were losing. The unions were totally blindsided in October when they found out that GM was about to run out of money, even though this isn't like some sort of arcane math. It's arithmetic. They were just... $3 billion was disappearing off their, their balance sheet every month. They were about to run out of money. And on the other side, GM refused to prepare for bankruptcy. In order to go through a reorganization, you need something called debtor and possession financing, which allows you to um, basically just gives you kind of working capital in order to see you through the reorganization. They just refused to apply. And why they, they couldn't, they, they had all these fantasies about how things could get better. At one point, they were talking about merging with Chrysler, even though Chrysler was having exactly the same trouble. So how you slap two businesses that are losing a bunch of money together and get one that isn't, 
totally unclear. They have all these, these pie-in-the-sky, you might call them get-rich-quick schemes, or at least not-go-bankrupt-so-quick schemes. Um, but there wasn't any realistic assessment of what was actually wrong, which was that they had become too dependent on financing. Um, and when capital, when financing started to dry up in the summer of 2008, people just couldn't buy their cars. They had no realistic plan to turn that around because they didn't actually name the problem. Megan, why do you think GM, you know, I, would, I think of GM, that they, they would have a board of directors, they would have those people who would know that this is pie in the sky, they're thinking that they're, not, they're going to be successful. Where does that come, why were they not, what is the, the I guess, the psychological um, stuff behind all of that? Why weren't they able to see this isn't working? I mean, I think of them, you know, whoever is on the board or running the companies or that they would have an experience, you know, experiences that would permit them to be able to to see that. Or There has to be a, what is the psychological? You get a collective, you get a collective problem. There's, first of all, um, there's a lot of individual biases that make it very hard for us to let go of things that have failed. Um, Human beings are, are what psychologists call loss-averse. We, we worry a lot more about losing what we have than we do about potential gains. So we're sort of inherently conservative um, in terms of exploring. And that's not necessarily a bad strategy. If you think about it, if you're in a little nomad band, then if you lose a lot, you could lose your life. So it makes sense to be conservative in that situation. Um, but because of that, you know, it's the psychological aversion of... We start to panic when we think about losing things. This is why gamblers, you see, right, of all people, they should know that the house always wins in the end, but they, they take a big loss, and what do they want to do? They want to go back in the casino and win it back. Um, it's very hard for us to let go, especially when we've been successful. The more successful we, we have been, um, the, more, the more difficult it is to acknowledge that we've lost it. So, you, you, I mean, groups, in some sense, they're, they're just like... They're big groups of human beings. They have all of the same biases that humans do, but they also have a few additional biases. And there's one that I call groupidity. And this is um, basically, it is when we collectively become unwilling to take risks that individually we would recognize were stupid. Um, that when you're looking around and other people are all seem to be acting like things are safe, then you feel like it must be safe too. And so you, you, you see a lot of that in the GM story where, where no one is panicking and screaming and running for the hills. And so everyone keeps acting as if they are not just about to, just on the verge of running out of money. Um, and there's some urgency and they are trying things, but nowhere near enough urgency and they're not trying the very obvious thing of making sure that they have the financing that they will need if the company has to go bankrupt and they need to restructure, which was basically by the summer of 2008, completely inevitable. Um, they just couldn't, ev- everyone is talking each other into believing that somehow this is going to work out okay. So there was kind of this group think or group fantasy, I guess, is what everyone bought into or buys into in that kind of a situation, which is different than individuals. It's easier perhaps to be more realistic if you are going, let's, you're out on your own, you have your own business, small business, um, I don't know if it's easier, but it's a different... You don't have the support of other people who are kind of feeding your fantasies, I guess. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. You don't have this this kind of collective ability to generate completely unrealistic fantasies. Um, and, you know, it, it, so it, it really can hurt you to be in a group. And there are ways that you can fight against this. Um, you know, one way that's uh, pretty effective is, for example, the military... Um, 
says that the most junior person has to speak first when they're in a meeting, and that's so that you don't get the everyone saying what the general wants to hear. Um, but it's it's tricky. It's it's a very difficult psychological hurdle to leap, um, and organizations tend to be bad at it. And in part because if you think about what an organization is, it's a group of people who have been selected because they are good at and like doing things the way that they're being done now. And so you have even people, individuals are resistant to change, but collectively they're much more effective at resisting change than, than individuals can be. Um, and that's really dangerous for an organization that's in trouble. Well, you mentioned the military. Can we go back to the military? Do we have a problem in the military that you're describing uh, that GM had, we start a battle, we start wars. But I mean, I don't want to get into you know uh, political analysis of Afghanistan and Iraq, but we keep on going because we just keep on going because we're there, and it's kind of that collective fantasy that we've got to win the war even when we're losing because we can't really take a look at that. Is that similar? You know, I I, I think that you, we've certainly made policy mistakes in the last few in the in the last uh, decade, but actually, in a lot of ways, the U.S. military is very good at confronting failure. In part, I think because it's very hard to ignore failure when it has a body count. Um, you certainly see things like Vietnam, where you say it would have been much better if they had acted sooner. Um, nonetheless, they actually do. I mean, they're 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 very systematic about after-action reports and, and trying to make sure that you are actually assessing what went wrong and how that could have been done better. And that's not all that common. A lot of organizations don't do that. They shun failure. Um, they make it hard to analyze what, what's gone wrong. And that, it, as you can imagine, um, becomes a big problem when they hit a competitive wall. So then the military is... The upside of that is what you're saying. They are yeah, good at that. Yeah, it's not perfect, but they are good. They are good at organizing themselves to confront their own failures, um, and we don't always appreciate that. Is that it's actually pretty rare to do it, uh, and certainly to do it as well as the military does. All right, let's take the prison system. We've got one thing left because we only have about a couple minutes left. Uh, why does the you know that we always talk about the prison system? The prison system is failing. Why does it fail? Where does that fit into this whole uh, sort of group thinking. Uh. The prison system is a really, really important um, area to look for America because I think in a lot of ways it is the, the area where we do worst. In general, America has a lot of institutions and a lot of cultural help for people who failed. Um, we don't in the prison system. We tend to turn, take failures and make them catastrophic. And I don't mean to suggest that, you know, what people who go into prison are just victims of failures. They've done something wrong. And, and punishment is deserved and needed because that's how you, you keep more crime from happening. That said, um, People, they are people who have made mistakes. That doesn't mean that they are people who cannot change and learn from those mistakes. And we don't set the prison system up as well as we could to help them change and learn from those mistakes and not be criminals. Um, so a, a while back, uh, an economist did a really interesting study where he looked at two juvenile court judges. Um, and one judge was, was sort of a hanging judge. He said he's handed out very harsh sentences. The other one tended to hand out much, uh, much weaker probation, that sort of thing. Um, and what they found was that the assignment to these courts is, is basically random. So you can get a good sense that what the, the main thing that's impacting people is the sentences the judge hands out, not whether one judge got the harder cases or what have you. 
What he found when he looked at this was that the people who had gone to the tougher judge had worse outcomes. They were more likely to be arrested, less likely to graduate from high school, and so forth. This is really important. When we punish people harshly, we are making them more likely to be criminals. We are breaking them away from their families. We are giving them a a resume gap that's really hard to recover from, and we are putting them in a big... uh, institution full of other criminals from whom they can, you know, gather professional tips and make connections that they will then use to resume their criminal activities on the outside. So that doesn't mean, of course, that we shouldn't punish them. So how do we punish them in a way that's not encouraging more criminality? Well, the the state of Hawaii has a really innovative probation program that answers just that question. And the judge looked at this and said, you know, the way probation normally works, it's basically a suspended prison sentence. And so what happens is a lot of people don't comply with all the regulations about not drinking or using drugs, come into your probation meetings regularly and so forth. Um, and so what happens is you'll, you'll rack up enough of these violations and eventually the probation officer will say, look, he's just not complying, he's going to have to go to prison. And, the, and sometimes the judge will say, well, let's give him another chance. But eventually a lot of those people end up in prison. And the judge said, this is insane. You wouldn't raise your kids this way. You wouldn't raise your kids where one time out of 20 they got punished and then nothing happened the other 19 times except that you said you really shouldn't do that. Um, so what he did was he, he said, we're going to do more punishment but smaller punishment. Every single time that you violate, that you don't show up for a probation appointment, that you test dirty on a drug test, whatever it is, you're going to, you're going to jail. But you're only going for a couple days revolutionary. They have cut the number of people who go into prison in half from probation. That's a fantastic example, and I wasn't aware of that. So we do have an example that we can follow or that other states can follow. That's what you're talking about, the Hawaii prison system. I hate to say goodbye because uh, obviously (laughs) all of this is very... Um, very interesting, lots of, uh, very informative too. In the, uh, Megan McArdle, and, uh, that's who we've been talking to. She is the author of The Upside of Down, While Failing is the Key to Success. And uh, I think we've learned that today. Uh, at least I have. So thanks so much for being on the show. You can get the book at bookstores everywhere online, Amazon.com. Is, and is there a website that you want us to, uh, yes, Megan, you can, you can see me at Bloomberg, but also at MeganMcArdle.com, which is the website for my book. Terrific. Thanks, Megan. Thank you. Yep, great having you on the show. We are going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Now there's a new destination for video content, VoiceAmerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us support. Surprise you. 
If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Welcome back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on Voice America Variety. Dot com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Elaine Bennett. Uh, Elaine Bennett is the founder and president of Best Friends Foundation. She's the wife of the former U.S. Secretary of Education, William J. Bennett. And her new book is Daughters in Danger, Helping Our Girls Thrive in Today's Culture. And I'm going to mention just a few statistics before I introduce her. Uh, Elaine, according to the Centers for Disease control, 22% of girls ages 11 to 17 in the United States experience some form of partner violence, putting them at higher risk of depression, poor school performance, and self-harm. Family and youth advocate Elaine Bennett offers an unflinching and unapologetic prescription for reversing the cycle. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Elaine. Thank you so much, Catherine. It's, yeah, and before we uh, got on the air, you did say you were going to describe the problem, but not only describe the po- problem, but you have answers to the problem, because that's a pretty high statistic. 22% of these girls experience this partner violence, and I would imagine that that's probably, um, the statistic is less than what it really is. Um, it, I think well, it is. Uh, you're correct there, certainly. Um, we know that uh, of girls on campus, of, uh, in regard to intimate partner violence, 40% of girls on our college campuses have experienced this, and only 12%, about 12% ever report it to the authorities. So it is bigger. It, it's a bigger issue. It, it's, a, it's been a silent epidemic, and it needs attention. Well, it's been a silent academic, but with your uh, your book, it's no longer silent because <laughs> the information is out there. So Thank we have you. to do something about it. Yeah, and so let's talk about the issues that you describe in your book, you know, specifically uh, with these girl with this population of girls, eleven to seventeen, experiencing this well, Catherine, violence. We, we do know that our culture today is more vulgar, mm-hmm. it's more violent, and more sexualized than ever before. And getting back to the violence among young girls, um, and again, the, the higher statistic, if you ask teenage girls if they know someone who has been hit or beaten by their boyfriend, uh, 40% of teenage girls will say yes, they do. And what my book is about is inspiring and, and encouraging and uh, parents and teachers and others in the community to instruct girls young girls, and what they're about to face before they face it. And it's about preparation. It's about being aware. You know, the helicopter mother has been criticized. I like that helicopter mom who hovers over her children and is aware of who their friends are and who the parents of their friends are. I much prefer that mother to the ostrich mom who puts her head in the sand. 
and doesn't really want to know because, oh, I, I've had mothers say, oh, gosh, I just, it's, it's just too horrible. I, I get too scared. I don't want to know what's, what's out there. But, Elaine, I'm always talking about balance on the show. Isn't there a balance between the helicopter mom who is, can be invasive um, and, uh, rather than responsible and, and then the other mom who is irresponsible also because she's got her head in the sand and doesn't want to know what's happening, not only with her girls but with her boys? I guess I'm sitting exactly. here because I'm the mother of three boys, and that's the other and half. I'm the of mother of two yeah. <laughs> boys. Yes, yes, you're exactly right, Catherine. Yes, there's there's a balance. Certainly, we don't want a helicopter mom who who becomes uh, you know overbearing and 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 uh, squelches her daughter's um, independence. What we want is certainly we want actually warm mothers, not uh, cool moms. You know, there's been a movement to being a cool mom, dressed like your daughter. You know, listen to your daughter's music, uh, be cool so she'll think of you as her best friend. Uh, again, warm mothers, mothers who encourage their daughters intellectually. And one key component, which I think is necessary to reduce this other epidemic we have, which is bullying, the mom who encourages her daughter to have compassion for others, to, to, to realize that we don't, we don't, why, why would we want to criticize the new girl or ostracize a girl? And why would you want to be a part of a group of mean girls who do that? I mean, and it's interesting. I mean, you're, you're, you cited the ages of 11 to 17. 10 and 11 is truly where uh, character starts to take hold among our girls and our boys. And they need a lot of attention at 9, 10, 11 because they're beginning to become the adults. Uh, of our future, and we need to instruct them on on the kind of behavior that is the behavior that will serve them best in the future and will serve others best. And at Best Friends, what we have, we talk about friendship a lot. I mean, we are a program that, that encourages or, or actually asks for a commitment from our students to say no to sex, drugs, alcohol, and violence. But we, we also have a lot of things they can say yes to, and that is, for, and we tell our students, our, actually our credo is the best kind of friend to have is that person who makes you a better person. I, I lost you a little in, in one of the sentences, but I just want to clarify that because you say no, you, part of the program is to say no to sex, drugs, alcohol, and violence. Do we Correct. necessarily have to put sex in the same category with drugs, alcohol, and violence? I mean, there can be good sex, loving sex, intimate sex, positive sex. A lot that I don't think you could ever say that about violence. Are they in this? I'm not sure how they fit together. Well, statistics show that if if children are involved in drugs and alcohol, they're going to be involved in sexual activity. And we're talking children here. We're talking 10, 11, 12-year-olds. And certainly sex among loving partners, and particularly in the context of marriage, can be a beautiful thing and a loving thing. It's not a, something we want, again, to uh, raise great fear about. But sex among 10, 11, 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds, or in, or in any, any teenage or, or young 20 situation where there's coercion, uh, where the, the girl does not really want 
to have sex but thinks that, well, gosh, I better go ahead and, quote, get it over with or he won't leave me alone until I do this or I'm kind of afraid if I don't do this, then he'll leave me and I won't have a boyfriend. Anytime there's fear uh, of rejection or, or, or just general fear, and frankly, Catherine, we have, we have a lot of girls being abused right now. Why, why this anger among, among boys, among young men? Why are they beating them? Why are they hitting them? Um, I just, I, I, I understand where you're coming from, but the concern that somehow we're presenting sex as a, as a, um, a harmful or a bad thing that never has any redeeming value is just, is not true. Our girls tell us they really don't want to have sex at this time in their lives, but no one, really is encouraging them to say no. They're showing them how they can protect themselves from becoming pregnant. And we know that doesn't work. Uh, and we are talking about right different age groups here. I think it's interesting. Two things that I'm thinking as you're describing this. I mean, if we raise our daughters, if one has daughters, to have good feelings about themselves and good feelings of obviously self-esteem, then that covers a wide range of not allowing anyone to coerce you into having sex you don't want to have or in a relationship that's abusive. And you can go on and on as you're describing it. So, right. uh, I mean, to me, you have to start before 11 to do that. We, you know, that, oh, that's yeah. you know, part I mean, of the parenting that you're talking about. Um, and and the, but my next I guess that's just a statement, but my next question is, why do these, where is this coming from? That You know, we're t- 22% of girls, I'm repeating that, from the Centers for Disease Control have these partner violence relationships, and you said even more so in the, did you say even more so in colleges and universities? Yes, uh, that that's yes. Prevalent. So Among we're talking our, about older, yeah, now that yes, would be we over, so, yeah, we're talking about adults, adult mm-hmm. women who are 18 years old. Um, well, I can give you three three areas of where it's coming from. The hookup culture, you know, and you uh, you referred to sexually transmitted diseases. You know, 30 years ago or even 25 years ago, we had two STDs, sexually transmitted diseases, we needed to worry about. Now they're 25, and that's directly related. And this is this is through solid research to multiple sex partners because they're far more evident and far more evident now on college campuses. Um, and I know my son said, Mom, don't criticize co-ed dorms. I said, but, uh, you know, I have to. The co-ed dorms have actually given rise. They know that young women in co-ed dorms, it's more likely they will have multiple sex partners. It's also more likely, two times more likely, they will engage in binge drinking. And alcohol has increased at a much higher rate among girls than among boys in college. Of course, it's extremely high among boys as we as we know. And I think another reason, social media, it contributes to widespread information. It contributes to harassment. And obviously, this anonymity and posting, uh, it's especially hard. It's especially hard on early adolescents. But, but you get teenage girls who think they can take pictures of themselves, um, you know, in various stages of undress and post it as a joke. And then they're shocked and ashamed and, and dismayed that these pictures go viral. That's led to some real, uh, some, uh, in fact, some tragic consequences. Um, I, I guess we had the, the real cause of why this intimate partner violence is, is um, as you say, has increased, but I do think 
there are factors that we can certainly point to. Where do, Elaine, where do the fathers fit into this? We've been talking, you know, it's probably more about the mothers, but, and, uh, of course, mothers are role models for their daughters, which is... Certainly. And you mentioned that. I mean, if mothers are trying to be teenagers or look like teenagers or act like teenagers, uh, that's not a good role model for for young women. But where do the fathers fit in? Because the relationships that little girls or young women have with their fathers are often repeated in the relationships in terms of the men that they choose. um, Well, they're key. Fathers are key to the emotional security of their daughters. That's, again, uh, been proven time and time again by developmentalists, certainly uh, not of one political persuasion or the other, but they are key. And whether the father is in the home or not, and we know over 50% of fathers are not in the home, they need to communicate how much they love and appreciate their daughters and to assure them that they are worthy of being treated with respect and with regard. And um, that's... That's not happening, uh, Catherine, at the, at the level that it should. Um, girls need to know, young girls, and, and, and you're right, younger than 10, 7, 8, 9, even, you know, certainly in preschool, yes. assure them that they are worthy of being treated with respect. This is how you should be treated because you are precious, you are lovely, you are a worthy human being, and don't don't stand for that kind of treatment. And as, and as girls get into early adolescence, let them know what they do stand for. Because, you know, as we say to our girls, if you don't stand for something, then you'll stand for anything. And our girls and best friends, and we've been in, oh gosh, I guess at least 10 large urban public schools. We concentrated in Washington, D.C., where I live. But we had a huge program in Newark and a large one in Charlotte and another large one in Milwaukee. Our girls respond to uh, the standards that we ask them to adhere to, and they're proud. And then we give them a lot of fun activities, Catherine, because adolescents need to have fun. It's not just about being fearful about what's in the world around, but to find joy in the world around us. I have a little girl who wrote me, uh, I have wonderful essays. We have an essay program, but she said, best friends brings my joy up. And every time I, you know, I'm feeling a little blue about things that are not going well, I think, gee, what can I do to bring my joy up? And we have, uh, we have a very active uh, fitness and health program, dance program, and we search hard for great music, inspirational music, and um, music that brings their joy up. And so, so you we focus have, on the things that they can do. I mean, self-expression exactly. and accomplishment and all of those things. And, and I, yes, and I think those are absolutely the things that prevent or women from engaging in the kind of, uh, you know, activity that is obviously harmful to them with, with, with men. But I want to ask you this because you, one of the things, um, that you say you take on, and I want to use the term progressive feminism to show how ignoring the differences between men and women does more harm than good and puts young women at risk. Let's talk mm-hmm. about that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, feminism as in, its, in its original form, I, I was certainly in favor of, and I absolutely support, as most intelligent people do, that there should be equal work for equal pay and equal opportunity in the workforce for men, excuse me, for women uh, and men. Um, 
as, as you may know, uh, females now outnumber boys on college campuses. 58% of the, of the uh, students on our college campuses today are female. 42% are male. So, you know, the girls have really uh, done very well in that regard. But socially and emotionally, they're not doing so well. And I do think there have been some conflicting messages out there. And one of them is you have a right to um, your pleasure at the same level as the guy does. So if you're on campus, on, in college, or you're single 20-something, you can party hardy, just like the guys. Well, the consequences just seem to be greater for our young women than for young men. I mean, you're a mother of sons. I'm a mother of sons. I don't want my boys uh, becoming intoxicated uh, on a regular basis and, and, and acting uh, rudely. And they're, you know, I've made that very clear to them. Yeah. But girls have uh, a greater risk because when they are, when they are intoxicated, and it takes far less for a young girl, uh, a girl, say, who weighs 120 pounds, can have two glasses of wine and possibly not be in the situation where she can consent to sexual activity. And I think it's very important for uh, high schools and colleges to talk about, what, do you have consent before you engage in sexual activity? Is, is, is the female fully aware of what is happening? There's a lot of morning after pills being taken, a lot of regret um, the next morning among, among girls who are not really sure even what happened. And that is, that's a concern to me. And I do think progressive feminism has not been clear on the, uh, the consequences. Or on the actual differences. I mean, we, and as what I hear you saying, and, and I agree, we need to have equal opportunities, and, and that's a good thing. Um, sure. And we've taken advantage of that because we outnumber the men. What did you say, fifty-eight percent to forty-two percent in terms of 42%. academic? Forty-two percent. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, that's great. All right. it, it's it's good. We've sort of it's, taken on the role and the responsibility. But the differences. Now you're talking about physiological differences. We aren't the same. Estrogen is different than testosterone, and that has a lot of implications. We don't talk about that. I think that really no. is important. And it doesn't have to be good or bad. It's just different. And we are different. That's true. Um, and I think that that's kind of gone by the by. We, we've gotten, you know, feminism has just involved our equal opportunities and those kinds of things, and we are different. Yes, I think that's true. Um, explore, do you do that, explore the differences between men and women? Yes, I mean, we do. Very specifically, we, yeah. Very clearly. In fact, we have separate groups. In 2000, because we were so effective with best friends with our girls, principals kept saying, we need a program for the boys. In fact, I had one little boy follow me down the hall and say, "Why? Well, I, I want to be in best friends. I want to, you know, and I said, okay, we'll start a program. We call it Best Men. And we found terrific um, male role models, um, minority teachers, men who, who stepped up to the plate and said, yeah, I'll, I'll take on that as a coordinator of a program. So in the middle schools, the best men and the best friends meet separately. In high school, we come together in the leadership program, and our diamond girls and our best men leaders meet on Saturdays um, at various, sometimes on college campuses, sometimes on their high school campus. And we've just had an incredible response there, Catherine, where 
the young men realize that uh, they want a better life, they have a goal, and they see actually marriage in their future. A lot of people today would say, oh, the young people today uh, disdain marriage, they don't think it's necessary, they don't want it. When you ask them what they want, what they want in the future, how many, what percentage do you think of our young teenage or high school student males said they want to be married someday? See, that would surprise me. If it was the girls, I would say most of them are. That's not really a mm-hmm. statistic. If it's the, the men girls, guys, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> 95% of the guys, 95%. And no one, no one ever believes it's that high. And um, now, and of the girls, it was 92%. And now these are students we've had uh, in the middle schools. Not all of them. Some of them join in high school. But they understand what we're talking about and that we're talking about saying no to risk behavior and saying yes to achievement. So we have a college uh, scholarship program. We've given over a million dollars in college scholarship monies to our, our Diamond Girl Uh, high school graduates, and now they're a part of a college council, and I love the letters that I get from them. And we've given, since we started later with the boys, probably about 400,000 to to our our male best men. And, but you know, that's not their primary motivator, because, you know, they come in in the ninth grade, and it's four years. They have to attend the program. They have to be a part of our youth summit. They have to show up. And showing up is what it's all about. It's, and, and, and we don't particularly have an academic. Um, if we have a, a student who is committed to, to our program, they're entitled to scholarship money. Whether or not they have a terrific grade point average or great scores on their SATs or their, you know, their ACTs, um, but what they get, gain and what they tell me is they gain a peer group they respect and regard. And one of our young men said, now you have friends, use them. You've got a network, a positive network. And this is what I'd like parents and educators to understand. Peer group is vital. I mean, we know parents, as children get older and older, I think the average amount of time uh, a young person spends with their parents could be as, as little as 17 hours a week versus over 40 hours a week in entertainment media, yeah. and we know where that's coming from. So if we don't look and turn our peer groups into a positive force, we're missing, we're missing out on, on an educational tool for our children. See, that I think is critical. That message is so critical, obviously. That's your message and the book and exactly. the Best Friends Foundation, so critical that a healthy peer group, you know, at whatever age, you know, we want to start at a very young age, and as you say, as the, student, as the kids get older, they spend less and less time with parents, no matter what their parents are like. So peer group, and the, I want to emphasize this again, that you are the founder and president of the Best Friends Foundation, because we only have a minute left. Correct. And the book, Daughters in Danger, which is the new book that explores how to save our daughters from depression, partner violence, and self-harm can be found online and bookstores everywhere. And 30 seconds, Elaine, just tell us what website we can go to to get more information both about the book and Best Friends Foundation. Oh, thank you, Catherine. I appreciate your concern for our young people. Best Friends Foundation, full word, dot org. Great. Go right to that website and you can get information. Best Friends Foundation dot org. Thanks so much, Elaine. 
Thank you, Catherine. Yep. Great having you on the show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a good week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.